Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. If you like the show and want to see it reach more grieving ears and hearts, support Coming Back on Patreon at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. My Patreon supporters get exclusive access to weekly grief journaling prompts and live grief hangouts with me. Pledge for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Join this growing behind-the-scenes community now at patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Thank you so much for listening to Coming Back. Just one more thing, grief growers. Do you ever feel trapped, stuck, or silenced in the aftermath of loss? Are you struggling to figure out who you are now or what your life is made of now that death, divorce, or diagnosis has steamrolled through? Whether you're trying to cultivate deeper self-compassion, figure out where grief belongs in your life now, or simply feel like you have more room to breathe, the three words that your heart needs to hear are permission to grieve. Permission to Grieve is the title of my latest book, a tribute to the three little words that changed how I saw myself and my grief after the death of my mom. I know it has the power to change how you see yourself and your grief in whatever loss you're facing. You can find Permission to Grieve now on Amazon. Give yourself more grace, space, and room to breathe in the aftermath of loss, because we could all use a little more Permission to Grieve. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm talking to Sarah Nannan, the author of Grief Unveiled, and a gold star military widow who's helping others find their footing in the aftermath of loss, because she believes there's so much more to life than simply surviving what happened. Also this week, I'm talking about the harmful practice of self-abandonment and sharing a passage from my new book, Permission to Grieve. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and author who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to help others find direction, get support, and cultivate radical self-compassion in the aftermath of loss. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much for listening today. Before I get into the top of the show, I just want to remind you that I'll be going live this Monday, September 23rd at 8pm Central Time. This is your opportunity, grief growers, to ask me anything about grief and loss and share your experience, frustrations and pain points in a group of people that really just gets what grief is like when much of the world does not. It's very much a safe space to be heard and seen beyond this show. So if you'd like to join me on September 23rd, pledge to support this podcast at patreon.com slash Shelby Just $1 per month gets you access to the link to join us live on Monday. Plus all of my behind the scenes posts, including weekly grief journaling prompts and stories from my own coming back journey. Basically, it's a really, really good investment for the money. And you get the knowledge too that you're supporting this show and keeping it on the air. I can't wait to see you September 23rd at 8pm as we share what it's like to come back from grief and loss and the struggles that you're currently facing. You can find a link to my Patreon page where you can pledge and join us in the show notes. 
Okay, so this week, I want to touch on a societal teaching, an internalized practice that we learn that I'm calling self-abandonment. It's basically what happens when we don't recognize ourselves in the aftermath of loss, and so we disconnect our emotions, identities, and behaviors as a result. We basically disconnect ourselves from who we are. We don't feel like ourselves anymore, and so we abandon ourselves. Self-abandonment is the second of two societal teachings that stop us from giving ourselves permission to grieve, and it's featured prominently in my new book, which is also called Permission to Grieve. If you'd like to hear more about the first societal teaching that stops us from giving ourselves permission to grieve called Life Rejection, go back and listen to episode 90 of Coming Back with Rachel Whalen. It's last week's episode, and it's loosely related to the concept that I want to share with you today. So check out this excerpt from Permission to Grieve about self-abandonment and how it shows up in the aftermath of loss. Enter self-abandonment. Self-abandonment is a holistic disowning of the self. Where life rejection is a pushing away of your external circumstances, self-abandonment is a pushing away of your internal circumstances. With life rejection, we reject the exterior, life on the outside. With self-abandonment, we reject our interior, everything that makes us who we are on the inside. Our thoughts, feelings, identities, behaviors, dreams, and habits no longer belong to us. In self-abandonment, we cease to belong to ourselves. Self-abandonment is a detached, sorrowful, disengaged, isolated energy that quietly refuses to interact with our grieving selves over and over and over again. The visual I often get here is of a parental figure standing on one side of a closed door in the dark. Their child or grandchild, having suffered a terrible misfortune that has rendered them totally unrecognizable, knocks softly on the other side of the door. The parent, not realizing that the energy on the other side of the door is their child, a literal piece of themselves, refuses to open the door, seeing a monster, and saying, I don't know you. I don't recognize you go away. This interaction continues over and over and over again. The child knows that they're home and that their parent is their parent, but the place that they call home, the person that they call home, cannot see that truth. This desolate child is a stranger, an abandoned stranger. In self-abandonment, we become strangers to ourselves. In grief and loss, it becomes incredibly hard to recognize who we are. Grief makes us different people. Everything that we identify with, from our emotional states to our patterns, to our dreams, to our fears, to our preferences, to our core truths, everything fractures and shatters under the weight of loss. Chances are, if you're grieving, you have become, at least partially, someone you don't recognize, and that new person is someone you never thought in a million years that you would be, someone you want to distance yourself from. So you do, repeatedly. You abandon your grieving self over and over again. Pause button. Who have you become in the aftermath of loss? What new traits, feelings, or behaviors are showing up in your body, mind, and heart? Who are you as a grieving person? In my loss, I became a person who couldn't read eat, converse, or smile. 
I had been such an extrovert before my mom died, and I had loved school. I was one of the first people to raise her hand in class. I had lots of friends. I was constantly performing in plays and recitals. I described myself, and others described me as a ball of sunshine. When my mom died, that person ceased to exist. My feelings oscillated from near-suicidal indifference to over-the-top hostility. Before loss, I had been balanced and observant, relatively happy and content. I hadn't been able to wrap my head around things like road rage or people who fought in bars or people needing to shoot or break things to achieve a release. But this new person, my grief self, empathized with that energy and even desired it at times. My former self had been an early-to-bed, early-to-rise human who made strict itineraries for work, class, and friends. But my grief self did everything from sleep for 14 hours straight to go for a drive at 2 a.m. Who is this person? I thought. I don't recognize her. My feelings, identities, and behaviors were like nothing I had ever seen before. I was unpredictable and impossible to contain or classify. And that scared me. In my fear, I pushed away from myself as much as I possibly could, detaching from my body, mind, and heart all at once. It was like I was watching myself grieve, except that I wasn't participating with myself as it was happening. A therapist might refer to what happened as dissociation, but I feel it was more than that. I literally refused to witness myself as this totally new and surreal grief person. She was so foreign that she couldn't possibly be me. Yet here she was, taking up my air and my bed and my friends and my brain. What does self-abandonment look like? It's not caring what happens to us. Self-abandonment is feeling our feelings and being our beings and doing our doings while not identifying at all with anything that's happening. It's looking in the mirror and not recognizing ourselves. Self-abandonment means becoming a different person and not a different person who makes sense either. We become a different person who is so far away from who we were before that we see ourselves and think, oh, that person, that's not me. That can't possibly be me. Pause button. Who do you see when you look in the mirror? Describe your reflection. How are you different from the person you were before your loss occurred? Are there things you used to care about that feel far away now? What are they? If you've ever found yourself thinking, who the hell is that? Is that me? Then self-abandonment is probably a part of your grief. One of the biggest losses we face after death, divorce, and diagnosis is loss of the self. And self-abandonment is society's way of dealing with loss of self. It's not our fault for using self-abandonment as a tool, but it doesn't feel good. And at the end of the day, abandoning ourselves does not ultimately help us deal with our grief. If you're looking for ways to embrace the person you are now, instead of abandoning yourself, I hope you'll get a copy of Permission to Grieve on Amazon. There's so much more in the book about where self-abandonment comes from, what it sounds like, and there's a lot more of these pause button style exercises that help you personally explore how you can start to recognize yourself again in the aftermath of loss, which is pretty powerful. And you can find a link to Permission to Grieve in the show notes. 
Up next, my conversation with author, podcaster, speaker, coach, and widow, Sarah Nannan, who lost her husband in an aviation accident in 2014. Grief is setting sail, twice, on the 2020 Bereavement Cruises. To join a boatload of grieving hearts for interactive grief workshops, heart-healing craft projects, circles of hope, and a beautiful candlelit night of remembrance at sea, request more information at comingbackcruise.com. You'll be contacted by the cruise's organizer and previous Coming Back podcast guest, Linda Finley, to hear more about your choice of two tropical cruises setting sail in 2020. And when you're ready, she'll help you reserve your spot on board. Bereavement cruise cabins do go quickly, so request more information now at comingbackcruise.com, where grief finds support and community on the open sea. Sarah Nannan is a keynote speaker, empowerment coach, podcast host, and author of Grief Unveiled, a widow's guide to navigating your journey and life after loss. Sarah became a military widow and solo mom in 2014 when an aviation accident claimed her husband's life. Her journey through grief informs her renegade work with those navigating painful life transitions who seek to live extraordinary lives. She has devoted her career to teaching sustainable well-being and a new paradigm of deep systemic integration of mind-body healing. Sarah lives in central Illinois with her fiancé Brad, their four children, and their blue pit bull named Luna. Learn more at www.sarahnannan.com. Sarah, I'm delighted to have you here on Coming Back today. You are an oft-requested guest here on Coming Back, so I'm thrilled to share your story with people who've been waiting to hear from you, but also to introduce your story to people who have never met you before or do not know of your work. So we'll start where we start all of our interviews and ask you to share your lost story today. Thank you for that invitation. I'd be happy to, Shelby. Uh, my story started in 2014 when I was living on a, mi- a military base in Japan with uh, four kiddos, one of whom was a newborn. And like you see in the movies, one sunny Sunday morning, a bunch of Marine Corps officers came to my front door dressed in their finest uniforms. And without saying a word, I knew they were there to give me the worst news of my life. Um, that proceeded to sort of unfold into this flurry of events that involved memorials in Japan, followed by an international plane trip with four kids under the age of five, relocating to temporary home base in my parents' house in Illinois, where we were from, and um, beginning this really intense soul-searching journey of scraping together life on the other side of losing my beloved husband of 14 years. That's the Cliff Notes version of the story. <laughs> and I think that's a perfect place to start. It's it's kind of just enough to jump in with. And I think the first thing that I want to start with, uh, listeners don't know this, but we're recording on September 11th. And I mm-hmm. want to just acknowledge that the entirety of this, the setting of this, your element of this, your husband's element of this is all military-centric focused revolving. Um, and this is an area, truthfully, that's more or less... Um, unknown to me. I have not lived a military life in any capacity. Mm. So I'm wondering if you can bring some perspective uh, to listeners about what it's like to, I don't know, would you call yourself a military wife? 
I'm, I'm, a, I'm many things. I'm a military wife. Now they refer to me as a military widow or a gold star spouse. We have, there's like an official title for this. Wow. But I'm also a veteran. I was in the Navy for five years myself. So I have a lot of perspective into the interesting, complex world of military life. So let's jump in there because I think there's, I mean, even the, the gold star designation is something that I have not personally heard before as it pertains to the military. Um, so I guess, what can you tell us about how death and grief operate within the context of the military? Because there's kind of, um, sometimes it's spoken and sometimes it's less spoken that there's always a possibility. Sure. That's absolutely true. And I think that makes it even perhaps a more complex community to talk about death and grief within because one of the primary coping mechanisms for active duty personnel service members as well as their families is we have to acknowledge the elephant of in the room and then very very quickly compartmentalize that elephant into whatever coping mechanisms work for us which usually feels a little bit like ignoring it uh, so that we can do the job every day whether the job is showing up to the front lines or holding down the fort while you know one of one of one half of the partnership is away and it it becomes this really interesting dance when someone does pass. So I've had the unfortunate experience of friends of mine being killed in action, as well as obviously my husband. Um, and I've also supported friends through the loss of military um, personnel that I didn't know. And it's always very interesting that one of the underlying experiences that seems to be quite universal is that we never thought it would happen to us. And so it, it makes sense that we would sort of been, be able to intellectualize the concept of death as something bad that happens to other people, to unlucky people, to not us. And that's that becomes a sort of coping mechanism. And I think we see this even seep into the civilian world um, within police officers and teachers and bus drivers. We never see it coming. Um, and it makes sense that that's one of our human kinds ways of coping with the reality that all of us are mortals and will at some point die. So anyway, back to the military, I think it's a unique part of our population that we have to acknowledge every day on the daily that our job does put us in harm's way in a way that the average accountant's job perhaps does not. And as a result, it creates, I think, a tighter knit community because we understand that, sure, we're fighting for our country, but I think when you're in the fight, you're actually fighting for your own life and the lives of the people beside you. And it feels that same way in the military spouse world, the ones who are not necessarily on the front lines, but the front lines of the home front, where um, acting as a solo parent or the sole uh, operator of a household is in its own way, a huge energetic output daily. And we in the same way really come together and create this family, this support where you know the people beside you have your back. And that came in really handy when my husband died because I was living on a small naval base in um, Japan. My family was really far away. And so the people who came to my side first were this really, really tight knit group of six women who I asked to come into my house and they just kind of took over and started taking care of me in a way that 
was so powerful. And so I had the benefit of having this really innate core family that wasn't family who understood what it was like to be me. And at the same time, I felt this overwhelming sense of sadness that my friends who were there helping me take care of my kids while I tried to peel myself off the couch to get through the day, then those first days, they were also kind of acknowledging the fact that this could be them. And that was a really, really tender source of connection, I guess, between us, but also really makes the grief process even harder because it forces you to look at the reality of your own life as well. You mentioned twice, actually, in your introduction story that you had four kids at home when you got the news and you knew on this sunny Sunday when the car was pulling up and these people were walking to your door, the news that you were about to receive. But I think something that a lot of parents struggle with, military and non-military alike, is breaking the news and then mm-hmm. deal, deal, I don't say dealing with grief, but negotiating grief because it often shows up differently depending on age, on gender, on school, on edu- like things they've learned thus far in their life. So I'm wondering, how did you tell your kids as you had this family, not family in the house with you and kind of that whole, how did that whole process lay out? Because you essentially, you brought them back to the United States all by yourself on a plane, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of, there's a physical energy output that happens there, but I imagine there was an intense emotional one as well. This is such a good question and something that I get asked about a lot. I mean, as anyone could imagine, telling your children their father died is one of the most complicated things you could ever endeavor to do. And I suppose it started out in real time. You know, I'm I'm in my house with all of these children and there's a bunch of strange men in uniforms and I'm crying. So the oldest was five at the time and he said, like five-year-olds will do, mom, why are you crying? And in that moment, I knew that the most important thing that I could do for him and his grief and his processing of this enormous experience was to be as honest as possible at an age-appropriate level for him, which takes some discernment, of course. And so I decided I was just going to tell him the truth and include enough information that he was able to be with, but not too much information and not like kind of leave the unknowns out of it. So um, I said in that moment, buddy, daddy had a crash and we're not totally sure where he is or if he's okay. But there's a bunch of people using helicopters to try and find him and help him. And he just looked at me very matter of fact and said, mom, don't worry about it. Helicopters have lights on them. They'll be able to find him. And so we kind of let it be at that for that moment. And his question really brought me back into the room. I was pretty dissociated, as you can imagine, just after finding out um, that news without a whole lot of answers. There wasn't a lot of certainty at that point, whether or not he had died. And his question kind of helped me re-engage with the fact that I was, in fact, a mother in the house with four kids who were in the middle of eating lunch. And it sort of progressed from there, right? As more more information came online, there was more dialogue around what was happening, what we knew. And 
what it meant for us. And so I had a conversation with a really, really wise Navy chaplain before I had the more official version, once we knew for sure that he had died. And I kind of asked him for some guidance. And what he told me was really, really useful. And I'm guessing this will be useful to people who are listening too. He just said, remember that this is the first of many conversations. And as your kids each grow and develop emotionally and intellectually, they will have different experiences with grief along the way. There'll be some times where they have more questions from almost a scientific point of view. And there'll be other times where they're feeling a lot of feels from a very emotional point of view. And sometimes, as we all know, it'll be both. And that really helped me put into perspective that in that moment, again, the most important thing that I could do was just be really present with my kids and sort of let them guide me so that I could intuitively talk to them in a way that was useful to where they were in that moment, knowing that we were creating a relationship where they were allowed to ask me questions. They were allowed to feel feelings and they were allowed to ask me for support with that. So the first conversation was actually teaching them even what the concept of being alive was because most of us are exposed to the concept of life and death via Looney Tunes where somehow magically that roadrunner just keeps coming back around or um, we don't have this like concrete finality of death concept down for quite a while. And so the first lesson was really about what does it mean to be dead and what does it mean to be alive just as importantly. And so we would use nature to help understand. So I'm talking to five-year-old, four-year-old, and two-year-old who's really just developing language context at all. And we were playing this game. Maybe it's a morbid game, but this is real life when you've got a father who's passed away. And we'd look at a tree and I'd say, does that tree have life in it or not? And they would say, yes. And then I would talk about a fake tree. Does that tree have life in it or not? Well, it's a tree, but it doesn't have life in it. So no. And then we'd look at a tree in the woods and you know, one that had fallen down and was in the process of decay. And they could see how that had life in it previously, but it currently did not at this point in time. And it was just a really interesting way for me to process what it mean, meant to be alive and not alive as much as helping them do the same. And that just kind of opened this long-term dialogue that would ebb and flow. And my goal ultimately in all of it was to make sure they knew that they could ask me any question and that they didn't have to protect me from their feelings. And as long as I accomplished those two things, I was pretty sure I was in the ballpark of doing it right, if you'll allow me to use air quotes on a podcast. Yes, absolutely. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I literally wrote down in all capital letters, this is the first of many conversations with regard to grief with kids. And I think, I mean, it, it extends far out to grief with everyone. But as you said that, I felt my shoulders go down and it has that same energy of, oh, you don't have to figure it all out today. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think so many of us fall into this trap of, okay, now that I'm grieving, I need to be the perfect griever. Right. And this whole, just like, I, you can't see my hands, but they're like shaking and building up into this mass in front of my face. But this whole presence of, I must have this stature and this facial expression and these vocabulary words and all of this stuff. And we put such intense pressure on ourselves to get it right and get it right the first time. 
and to not screw this up because it does feel so important that death makes the stakes feel really high. And so to have this chaplain, I mean, wise person that they are to say, this is the first of many conversations, AKA, you don't have to figure this all out today. You're not just going to have the one talk, but with the stakes feeling so high, it can definitely give off those vibes. Um, So thank you for sharing that with us. I think that's so important. Um, I kind of want to pivot into a place of where the outreach to others came from, like whether that was something that, that built up in you over time or came from a spark of something that inspired you because so much of your work now is supporting widows and the people who love them, but then also just grievers in general, this, this large umbrella through your coaching work and through your book, uh, Grief Unveiled and your podcast as well. So where did that come from for you? This is a great question too. The, the short answer is it came from a dissatisfaction with what was available to me. I was really, really blessed with access to a huge amount of social support, but also a lot of institutional support. The military has amazing grief resources. I was able to go on a widow retreat with um, a, an organization set up for military survivors. Um, I went to therapy because I thought that's what you were supposed to do. And I, I just kept being met with this message that this was the way it was going to be. And my role was to learn how to cope and survive. I mean, how many survival skills and coping strategies and stress management workshops can you attend before you start looking for the inspirational speaker room? And that's kind of where I was at when I went to um, a workshop that my whole family was attending, my kids, my in-laws, my parents, I think my sister-in-laws were there. And this lovely, kind-hearted volunteer pulled me aside and she said, could I just ask you what your experience has been like here today? And I'm positive my response was not what she was expecting. And I felt a little guilty about it. But I, I thought, if I don't tell the truth, I'm not actually helping her or this organization. So I said, I'm so appreciative that places like this exist that are teaching people survival skills and coping strategies. And I'm also wondering if you've ever considered that at some point people need more than that. I'm, I could teach your stress management workshop <laughs> and I could probably facilitate the coping strategies room. And I would really, really love to hear from somebody who was on the other side of this debilitating pain who could tell me that it was going to be okay and that there was a reason for me to keep going and keep trying and keep seeking for something that felt like it could help me. And she kind of stopped in her tracks and she was certainly not prepared for that. And I, I said, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for this. And, you know, we kind of just moved on with the conversation. But in that moment, I realized I had come to a point where I was no longer satisfied with the status quo of what was available in grief support. And that really initiated a huge seeking journey for me to go into the world and start looking for things that felt like inspiration and that had room for growth and hope and healing. And that the people who I was dealing with believed in my ability to heal as much as I hoped I could. And I was along that journey that I realized that I was, I was growing and I was healing and I was transforming. And one day I looked up and I realized I really, really 
love this life that I never in a million years thought I could truly love. I thought I could maybe fake it till I maked it in that direction and have a sort of a scraped together, scraped together second best kind of life. But to really feel rooted in the fact that I loved my life and who I was made me feel like it would be a disservice if I didn't tell other people that that was possible. And so I just started sharing my experience a little more openly, a little more vulnerably. And of course, coupling that with my mindfulness and yoga training and my coaching perspectives, and also this interesting perspective that I brought to it as a former birth doula, in addition to a naval officer, I've worn a lot of hats and tasted a lot of layers of the way you can be a human being in the world. And so much of what was informed, what what was informing my process was really rooted in how I cared for a laboring woman in childbirth, one of the most intimate, raw, potentially overwhelming human experiences we can have, and how that was actually very similar to the process of grief. It was just happening on less of a physical level, you know, in a place no one could see. <laughs> and so that was let, what led me to begin outreaching with other people. But I had a moment where, um, a woman who I had never met asked me via a friend if I could come to her home less than 24 hours after she found out she had become a widow. And it felt really vulnerable for me to say yes. And yet I felt so called. So I did. And what happened there was so powerful that I knew in that moment that this was actually taking me down a whole new path of holding space for the experience of grief, but also powerfully guiding people through that journey to something on the other side that they didn't know existed yet. I want to go back to this beautiful visual of supporting somebody who's in labor because, and even back to the story about telling this inspirational speaker, like, this is all great, but where's the, like, where's the meat? Where's the depth of it? Where's the inspiration? And I keep getting this sense that you're circling this idea that like at some point, the practical stuff just isn't enough. Like the the tips and the coping mechanisms and the, you know, the top 10 listicles of ways to ease your pain while grieving, blah, blah, blah. Like at some point you have to turn the intellectual piece of it off and go into the heart piece of it. And that's, I mean, that's the message I'm receiving loud and clear. Let me know if that resonates with you. Absolutely. Really, my focus is alerting people, notifying people that there is more than surviving. And I think we can get so stuck in surviving the pain. And unfortunately, what happens is this idea that time heals all is a really dangerous myth that we get numbed into submission with. And so when we are told over and over and over that our goal is surviving, we're called a survivor, in a loving way, yet there's some real intense internal unconscious messaging that's getting lodged into our sense of self. And we're projected onto every day with this strange pity and and almost like disconnect from other people. It, it's so easy to get lost in that world where the only version of life you can see is surviving the rest of the ride. And I think without 
people who are willing to be guides and way showers and storytellers and, and talk about not just the pain and the depth and the complexity of the journey through grief, but also that it is a journey through and that there is the potential for incredibly fulfilling life. It's, I mean, I think it's the most important thing we can do for anybody who's in pain. Okay. So I totally am absorbing all of that. And I'm like cheering over here. And the thing that I land on, I suppose in my own journey personally, but the thing I hear from listeners of this show too, is that people keep telling me that this survival mode, this where I'm at right now won't last forever. And there's something more than this, but I can't feel it. And I can't see it yet. I can't comprehend like grief brain is a very real thing. And you're like, I just can't see past the first six inches in front of my face. And yet there are people out here doing the work like yourself and like myself and like all the guests we've had here on coming back of, I love this, alerting people to the idea that there's more than just surviving what happened. Um, So how do you speak to people who are in this place of I believe you, but I just can't see it yet. Well, pretty much every client I've ever had is saying that exact same thing during our first conversation. And hey, I remember being there. I remember hoping and wishing on a star and praying into being the possibility that there might be joy someday and not being able to fathom how that would be possible. And so I, I say, this is why we need a guide, right? We need a guide through this intense labyrinth of experience, of thought, of sensation, and even the social world around us so that we can actively find our way through it. And so I say it's, it's a choice that you can make to show up today and take tiny micro steps forward on behalf of your future self and it won't feel like much in the moment, perhaps, although some small things can mean a huge difference in someone's life. But there'll come a day where all of those micro steps forward accumulate into a moment of recognition, where you've reconnected with your sense of self in present tense and start to have the ability to reflect on what happened, but also to begin visualizing, however hazy it may be, a better future. Can you give us some examples of what your personal micro steps were? Like even reflecting back, you might not see it when you're living in that moment, but hmm, what does that look like now? Well, there's I could probably write a long anthology about all the micro steps that I continue to take on behalf of my (laughs) future self. But in the beginning, it was really simple. And, And one of the things that I teach very early on is giving people some self-regulation practices, because I really believe that when we're trying to move beyond surviving grief into a more meaningful lived experience, we can't actually start with talk therapy. If we try to intellectualize our way through it, it will never really feel real, I believe. That's a big statement. haven't done a PhD in this direction, but it's coming. We've got to start with our physical experience because what we know about the human being is that when we are in a moment of stress or duress, when we experience 
something that threatens our existence, whether it's a physical threat or an experienced one, like losing someone you love, it literally feels like we are going to be exterminated. We feel like we're going to die. I can't tell you how, like, you know, it feels like I'm going to die when we're in that much pain. And so one of the first things that I work with people on is practices that help them self-regulate their physiological response to grief. And grief is a very big word. It's vast. So of course, within grief is sadness, but it is also anxiety and overwhelm and fear of the future and stress and on and on and on. And so some of the best things that we can do, and this was part of my healing journey as well, was learning how to use breath practices to bring my physiology back to a state of neutral. And everybody wants to be happy again. But when we're in a human experience, I think neutral is like the new little black dress. We, we, if we're, neutral is our goal, we will be able to experience the highs and the lows of life in a much more complete way. So instead of shooting for happy, we're shooting for neutral. And so using things like movement practices and breath practices and even don't tune me out meditation is a really, really powerful way to create a physiological landscape within us that allows us to access the mental and emotional piece of healing. I think that's really wise. And it's kind of um, the word that's coming to mind for me right now is novel at first, because usually before grief, unless we're versed in yoga, meditation, breath exercises, it's not something that, I don't know if I can blanket everyone with the average person, but it's not something I know for me personally, I didn't participate in. So I didn't come to these alternative mentalities or modalities of tuning into the body until my mom died. And then everything was dialed up in such a way. I was like, is it going to be this hard to focus Mm -hmm. forever? But then, you know, I'm sure you know as well that the continued practice of it, just continuing to tune in doesn't make it easier, but it makes it more of like an autopilot thing. And, you know, the thoughts are still there. The pain is still there, but you can get back to this place of reframing your goals of not happiness, but neutral. And I think that's I think that's really wise and insightful because so much of the world is asking, when are you going to get back to happy? Mm -hmm. And you're like, that's not even a goal. That is not on the menu for right now. I just getting back to happy is not on the menu. Well, and it puts a lot of pressure on yourself when happy is the rite of passage that lets everybody know you made it, that you're okay now. And, um, you know, I want to be careful that people aren't hearing me say neutral is the goal and that means settling for crappy. Um, neutral really means like I'm in a good place. I'm not high and I'm not low. I'm able to be here in equilibrium. And particularly when it's physiological equilibrium, that's the best place to come to life from because you're not reactive, right? You're not having hyper arousal of your sympathetic nervous system trying to fight or flee or rage or like feigned, like fall apart. You know, I'm, I'm going a little into the physical side again, because I think it's so important for people to understand this isn't just a mental thing. Your grief isn't a mental thing. It's not just something in your head. This is something that is actually powerfully impacting your physical body. And if you start by tuning in 
to the basic needs of your physical body and managing the physiological reactions of systems within you that are meant to help you survive. You will experience all of the difficult things happening in and around you from a completely different place. So you're right, it doesn't change the circumstance. It doesn't change the fact that someone died. It doesn't change the fact that you're in a really painful life transition. But it does change the way you engage with that reality and with all of the choices that you'll be asked to make in the aftermath of it. I want to go in a totally different direction and ask you how your husband enters your space now. Like, where does he exist for you in your life now? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me this. It's one of my favorite things to talk about, and it surprises people because it's a topic that people tend to not want to mention because, oh, by the way, I'm engaged. And so there's this curiosity around how do you have a love story and also a love story? And Along my grief journey and the exploration of mortality and love and human connection and even, you know, dabbling in questions of spirituality in the universe and where what happens to our soul when we die, not from a religious perspective, but like where is he now? I can say that along the way he has presented so many moments of connection and engagement with me in ways that would be really easy to dismiss as wacky coincidence or seeing what I wanted to see or dreaming what I needed to dream. But I chose to sort of catalog all of these moments that were sensed as connection with him. His name was Reed and receive them as just that connection with him wherever he is now. And as a result, two things happen. Um, again, not to like bring religion into this. So I'm speaking from this a little bit more metaphorically. So all of those of you who are listening, you can keep your beliefs totally intact. And this isn't a commentary on any of that. But the way that I see him now, right? And it's just, this goes back to how I talk to my kids about life and death, right? Is there life in that body or not? I believe that the body is the soul's vehicle to have an experience here on earth. And when that body dies, the soul exists somewhere. I don't know where, I don't know how, I don't know why, but it's out there somewhere. And the way that I see it essentially is that Reed is my caseworker on behalf of the universe. And so whenever this incredible universe conspires on my behalf, it speaks the language of love that Reed and I shared. So it'll be in the stories, in the songs, in the numbers that were meaningful to us. And it's really just a nod from the great unknown out there that I'm on the right path, that somebody's got my back, and that it's going to be okay. The other piece of it is people want to know, how do I grieve? What does my grief feel like now? And that answer has changed over the course of time. Not because time heals all, but because I've really intentionally been in contact with my grief and in observation of my grief. And the best way, the most honest way that I can talk about my grief now is this incredibly sweet, nostalgic gratitude for what was. It's like a memory I have of me baking cookies with my grandma when I was probably five. And I was wearing one of her aprons that was way too big for me. And it was just us the whole day with the smell of baking and the taste of 
fresh whipped up batter on the spoon. Like that kind of sweetness that you're so grateful that you had. And I can never experience that again. But I had it and I have gratitude for that. And so that's really the way that I experience my grief now. When I remember my amazing love story with this man who was the father of my four kids and, you know, meeting him at 18 and going through college and all of the craziness of our life as first dual military family. And then, you know, the journey that ensued once he was this active duty person. There's just so much sweetness and so much gratitude that it happened. And that for a while, he was an incredible part of my story. And I think that's something that we need to really examine in our culture when we talk about grief, because there's such a permanence assumed for grief that it will be pain for the rest of forever. And I think it's somewhat inherent to our resistance to our grief in the first place that keeps us from eventually, ultimately being able to experience it as sweet gratitude for what has been. This so closely echoes a sentiment from a previous podcast guest named Caleb Wilde, who wrote the book Confessions of a Funeral Director. And he writes that we are all mosaics of each other. And so to carry those memories that can never happen again within our minds and our bodies and our souls onward is kind of how grief continues to exist, how our loved ones continue to exist, inclusive of us. And I, I'll wholeheartedly admit I'm in a place where I have about 30 to 40% of my memories that are that sweet cookie dough baking kind of feeling. And there's still a whole, whole bunch that I am wrestling with. And so even just from our previous conversation of shifting from a place of surviving with these hard memories versus someday leaning into a joyfulness or a gratitude or like a wholehearted showing upness with them is really exciting. Like the prospect of someday my story getting to where your story is, is really exciting, even if I have no idea how that's going to happen yet. So thank you for sharing that. That was just kind of, mm. um, that was personal to me because as you were talking, I was like, wow, not everything I have is quite like that yet, but I believe it could be true in the future. And I think so much, this is such a hard question, but people are like, so quick to dissolve the role of faith in grief because they mm. equate it with religion. And mm -hmm. I have learned in my own world that faith and grief doesn't look like believing in God or a higher power or, you know, the will of the universe or however you want to phrase it. It's it's faith and belief that one day things will look different from the way that they look right now. And mm -hmm. when we're moving around our everyday, like that's inevitable. We know tomorrow is going to be different from today, but grief has this, grief's kind of magical in a way and can cause us to think that things will always be this way. Like you said, we'll always be doing nothing but pain. Grief is nothing but pain. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm just so touched by that story. Thank you for sharing that. And for Reed's, um, I'm just like influence on your sphere. I just get this, this whole picture. And I love this phrase of a caseworker on your behalf. Cause what a riot is that? I'm getting, I don't know what he looks like, but he's carrying around little file folders and following around the universe in my mind. Well, think <laughs> sexy fighter pilot carrying around oh. fighter flyer folders. And you'll have a better idea. <laughs> 
buy a Top Gun, right? You've seen that. Oh yeah. Highway to the Dangers. Absolutely. I love that song. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you said something just now that I actually two things, if I can just super quickly go there. One is it's easy to hear me say that my grief is sweet, nostalgic gratitude. But I think part of what's challenging in grief is that not all the memories are sweet. There's a lot of unfinished business and there's pain um, that was there in a relationship before the death happened. And so part of what's challenging is in a world that wants to paint the aftermath of someone's life with rose-colored glasses, there's a lot of complexity to your grief. Because on the one hand, you desperately miss them. And on the other hand, there's a lot of unfinished business with the person who's there, no longer there to engage in the resolution of it. And this applies as much to spouses as it does to children and mothers and anybody you ever love. And so I guess I just wanted to hold space and acknowledge the reality that, like you said, and you know, like we've talked about, that engaging with your grief intentionally is a really huge part of navigating the path toward the rest of your story. And that does mean often engaging with the bittersweet as well as the sweet. And I think it's important to name that because so often people can feel shame around their love story or shame around their relationship with the person who died. And um, to exonerate people of the guilt of the unfinished business instead creating an invitation that you can continue to engage with that unfinished business in a way that can bring it to resolution as a really meaningful part of the healing process. Mm. The, the other note that I was making, you know, you talked about faith and belief that things can get better. And I think that it's a really important distinction because often it's, it's the search for hope. I want hope. I have hope. And it's important to name that Hope can't just be a wish on a star. To me, hope is an actionable path. And it's one that requires us, like I said earlier, to take small, perhaps micro steps forward on behalf of ourselves in the direction of hope. And so part of the work that I do with people is really bringing into clarity what it is they hope for so that they know where to begin placing their footsteps as they move forward. And then it sounds really hard, right? Because initially, when we're in such a place of pain, hope sounds often like, I just want to feel better than this. I don't even know what I want. I can't even fathom my future. I just don't want to feel this terrible. And so very quickly, that becomes clarity. In this moment, hope for you means feeling some relief from the intensity of it. And so we work toward that. And when we feel relief from the intensity, there's a little bigger window of clarity available to us, right? The next thing is, I just want to feel connection with another person. And so then we put our attention and our awareness into creating that as reality. And so when I say micro steps on behalf of your future self, I'm not saying like read every self-help book on the planet and like make a vision board because you think those things might solve your problem. It's really, really turning inward and getting still and getting quiet and calling in clarity about what is the next most important thing that I can do on behalf of my future self. And sometimes that looks like give your permission to stay in bed for the whole weekend until you know you're done. And then give yourself permission to get out of bed and go for a walk. It doesn't have to be 
figuring it all out today. You don't have to enroll in a nursing program. You don't have to move across the country. You can do those things. And if you feel clear that they're important for the path forward, great. But I think so often we force something onto our path that gives us hope, but we're choosing not in the direction of our best self. We're clinging to hope because we think it'll fix the problem. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense because the world likes to stop at hope. They're like, just hope, just have faith, just believe. And I'm like, yeah. and then what? <laughs> and, and I'm then laughing. keep calling and carry in- on and fake it till you make it. That's, you know, that's the word on the street. Yeah. And it makes you crazy when people say it because you, I love, I wrote down again in all capital letters, this is an all caps conversation in my notebook is hope is an actionable path because this notion that hope is not a noun, it's a, it's a verb. You're in the process of hoping as yeah. you're meandering through grief and navigating what life is like in the aftermath of the worst thing that has ever happened to you. And I, I think it goes back to reframing what goals are. And it's like, hope's mm. not the destination, it's a part of the process. And that's, I mean, that's the first time that has ever escaped my lips that way. And that feels really true. Yeah. There's an African proverb that says you have to move your feet while you pray or something like that. And it just really strikes me as true. So often hope feels like giving our power away to an institution or, you know, God to spare us from this misery. And when we involve ourselves in the process, there's this incredible shift of empowerment that happens from within us where we're an active part of our healing process. And again, it's so hard to know, like, where do I even start? Because there isn't really an accessible model for healing in our culture because the expectation is time heals all, keep calm and carry on. And when we insert ourselves into the process with somebody who can help us find our way, it becomes easier to know where to, again, like where to place the next step, not based on somebody else's opinion, but guided from within you. What is the next most important thing that I need right now? All judgment aside, all fear of judgment aside, all other people's opinions aside, what do I know is the next most important thing in my life to pay attention to, to nurture? And despite the fact that most people will tell you that it's all about the hustle, get a new job, get a new boyfriend, get a new dog, get a new hobby, get a new haircut. That's sort of like the word on the street is this is what will help you heal. Um, my advice for people is to slow down and to create more stillness. And it will probably feel like failure initially, but you will get so much internal guidance from that place and have so much clarity about where to put your energy in the direction of your healing. I think this is an ideal opportunity to let people know where they can find you and your work, because I sense that some of you listening are like, I don't know where to put my feet. I don't know where I want to start. And, or you're looking for this guide that's just a little bit farther ahead on the road or is like, I've been here before, maybe a few years ago, et cetera, et cetera, um, that can start to help with that. What does hoping look like next? So if you could please share where you would like to be found. Well, friends, I have a book called Grief Unveiled, A Widow's Guide to Navigating Your Journey in Life After Loss. You can find that on Amazon. I also host a podcast called Grief Unveiled. So if you write that down, you'll remember where to find me. And you can also just connect with me on my website. It's www.sarahnannan.com. I'm hoping that will be in the show notes because my name is often misspelled. And 
right there on that landing site, you can find a meditation for peace, which is just a sweet little tool to help you start where you are right now today in turning inward, slowing down just a little bit and finding that pocket of peace inside of you to help you figure out where to begin in the first place. You can also just email me, hello at sarahnanon.com or find me on Facebook. I'm all, I'm in all the places, you know, just I'm out there. And I look forward to connecting with you. And for everyone listening, I will have Sarah's website in the show notes, which is kind of the jumping off platform for everything else. There's articles there, there's podcast interviews there. And then of course this meditation as well, which is so, it just helps you take a deep breath, which is so much needed Mm. in the aftermath of loss. And Sarah, I have just so enjoyed sharing space with you this afternoon. So thank you so much for coming on, coming back. This was a joy. I'm so glad we finally got to have this conversation. Shelby, thank you so much for having me on. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so very much to Sarah Nannan, who many of you have requested to appear here on Coming Back, and I am so glad she did. I'm honored to have had you on the show, and I am so glad we got to get to the meaty stuff like faith, grief with kids, and moving to a place beyond simply surviving what happened. Sarah came back by taking what she calls micro-steps, and by using self-regulation practices like meditation that deal with the aspects of grief beyond the mental and logical. You can find Sarah's book, podcast, coaching, and free meditation on her website, sarahnannan.com, and you can find that link in the show notes. If you're looking for more grace, space, and room to breathe in the aftermath of loss, I hope you'll purchase a copy of my new book, Permission to Grieve, which is live now on Amazon. To keep this little grief podcast going and to receive insider bonuses like weekly grief journaling prompts, podcast swag, and live grief support with me, pledge to support the show at patreon.com slash Shelby Thank you so much this week to Andrea for pledging to keep coming back on the air. I appreciate you so, so much. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you so much to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you, I'm proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world, and I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.